A few years ago, Brittany and I went with the youth group down to Skid Row, Los Angeles. And there we had an amazing week of just serving the homeless and helping youth find their way. And you might remember a few years ago, um, we had a youth pastor here and we had, we joined up with another church. So there's a team of us and Brittany and I went to go help and support. And it was an interesting week for many reasons, but one in which I'm not very proud of. And it's the one I'm going to tell you about. So on the very first day, what we do is we go down to Biola University, and we stay at their campus, and then we load up in the morning, we load up the cars with things that we're going to need, like socks to give to homeless, uh, some Bibles, um, we, we bring our own lunches, and then, of course, the kids, and we load them up in the cars, and we fight the traffic through LA down to Skid Row, and we get there. And when we get there, we come to this um, organization called Five Breads and Two Fish, and it's run by... Uh, just a couple, and it's a, a very run-down part of the city, of course. But what they do is they get all of the leftover foods, the, the foods that go past date, that ex, uh, their shelf life expires, from Trader Joe's and a couple other places. And so they receive those, and then we go in and we sort through the food that's kind of rotting, that's kind of definitely past its shelf life, and the others that are like only a couple of days past and they're still totally edible. So we sort through those, and then we get the ones that are good, and we go to um, one of the project areas, and we allow people to come with and fill up a shopping bag of the food. And um, anyways, so while we're there, the first day, we were at Five Breaths, Two Fish. We're sorting through food, and some of it looks really good. Some of it looks really gross. <laughs> and they were getting near lunchtime. And of course, you're seeing food, and you're very much aware of the fact that you're hungry, especially teenagers, very aware of the fact that they are hungry. And so we begin to talk about when we're going to do a lunch break, and then it dawns on us, who is supposed to bring the cooler? And we all look at each other. I didn't bring it. Did you bring I didn't bring it. The cooler had all of the students' lunches in it. And so we realized, okay, um, keep working, kids. And then we go have a powwow. What are we going to do? We don't have their food. Well, maybe we can eat some of this food here. This is for people that actually need food. We, I mean, what do we, and so like we're having this powwow, and um, ideas come up, like maybe someone will go get pizza. Maybe we'll have it delivered here. Maybe we can eat some of the rejected food. I mean, there's, we're coming up with these ideas. And then Brittany and I have this idea. What if we just fast? It's like, it sounds awful because they're in front of food all day, touching it, smelling it, handling it, but I can't eat this. Is he looking? <laughs> uh, but we all looked at each other and we thought, it's a really good idea. You know what? In the presence of food and working with people that don't get to eat whatever they want, whenever they want, maybe we'll just practice fasting. This is, we're like, this is going to be very unpopular, but... So the youth pastors go, and they declare our decision to the kids. And you can imagine they were so excited. They were like, yes, we get to be spiritual. No, not at all. They grumbled <laughs> quite a bit. But we're like, no, 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 listen, they, this is actually really good. And look, dinner's not that far away. We're going to have a meal when we get back. And everyone's kind of going with it. And um, throughout the week, you kind of hear this, like, it became, like, the memory of the week. And kids keep, keep bringing up, remember how, like, you guys left the lunches and made us fast? But, like, it's clearly, like, a memorable moment. 
they come back here and they tell all the adults, you know, like the testimony of the trip. And like, yeah, and, they, and, and our youth pastors made us fast. And, you know, but you could tell like, it, it did something for them. And, it, and by the end of the trip, everyone realized like that was a powerful bonding moment. Um, but all week, Brittany and I really struggled with that. And here's where this gets really petty and really sad. It's because in our little powwow about what do we do, it was our idea. It ended up being a pretty successful idea, but it was presented as the youth pastor's idea, not me and Brittany. And then the stories all week were about how the youth pastors had this great idea to teach us the fast. And we get back, and they're telling all their parents, and we're telling the congregation, and it's, it's the youth pastors who were wonderful and teach, you know, all these things, right? They're getting all the credit. Now, I know this is petty. It's like a stupid idea about fasting. But I realize as I look back, like, that's where the human nature goes. We crave credit. We want to be acknowledged. We want to know that something, we contributed to something, and that people recognize that. And I look back, and we're like, yeah, we were, well, I mean, it was frustrating, but is it really that important? Did it really matter? We just want somebody to say, good job. Somebody to see, yep, you do have good ideas. Sometimes I'll talk to students and, or people at church, and they'll be all excited telling me about this new concept that they learned or how suddenly they saw something in the Bible or they now get something about the walk with God or now they finally feel like they connect with God in prayer and they're explaining it to me. And I'm like, I taught you that. <laughs> but they have no idea. They obviously don't remember where they learned it. They're just like, ah, and, you know, they, sometimes they might even credit like that or something. You're just like, the human nature is like, give me a little credit here. I'm worth something. But what if we decided to live as if we did not exist? Wait, what? What if we decided to live as if we didn't exist? So in other words, we are helping people, we're serving them, we're throwing out good ideas, we're making things happen, but all the while we're living as if my name is not on anybody's mind, and it shouldn't be because I don't exist. Like, what would happen if we lived like that? We weren't concerned with the fact that, ah, I'm getting established, I'm feeling like a somebody because other people see me as a somebody. What if we learned just to be invisible. How would that change things? Well, in Isaiah 42, we actually see that there is a person to come who chooses to live like this. Now, Isaiah. Uh, This is the later part of Isaiah. There's two halves of it. The second half of Isaiah starts to address Israel when they're going to be kicked out of their land and homeless and seeking hope. And Isaiah is writing to these Israelites and saying, hey, I know it's bad, but God is going to send a deliverer, a Persian king who will free us and bring us back to our homeland. His name's Cyrus. Some of the prophecies are that amazing because that's what happens. But then he also talks about this other mysterious figure, not a political king, but a servant who's going to come. And he's going to have some sort of royal authority because he's going to bring justice to the nations and he's going to deliver people, but he's called the servant. And so we're going to look tonight at the first of these four poems, these four songs that celebrate the coming servant. So if you will read with me, we're in Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
Behold my servant. This is Yahweh, God, talking to, through Isaiah to Israel. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. How will he bring forth justice to the nations? Well, this is a very interesting plan. Verse 2. First, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's going to be a very silent person. Verse 3. Second, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So what does that mean? A, a bruised reed is something that's weak and it's hurt. Uh, a smoking wick, a faintly burning wick, that's the candle that's about to go out. He's not going to snuff that. He's not going to break that. He's going to be gentle with these. And third, in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So he won't quit. So here's a servant full of the spirit of the Lord who's going to bring justice, fairness, rightness, the finally the good times to all the nations, but he's not going to conquer the nations. He's not going to establish a royal authority that puts out laws and makes people obey them or not. He's simply going to come and serve. And the way he's going to serve is he's not going to show off. He's going to befriend the weak, not befriend the strong. The strong give you more power. But he's going to befriend the weak, the people who can actually hurt his campaign. So he's not going to show off. He's, he's going to befriend the weak, and he's not going to quit. Even when it gets really hard, even when this servant has to have his beard plucked from his face and his back whipped and reduced to hamburger meat and his arms stretched upon a cross, even when this servant goes through these, he's not going to quit. This, of course, is Jesus. This we know because Matthew, Matthew's gospel quotes these first four verses and applies them to what Jesus is doing. We will go there momentarily, but I want to take us through this song first. Verse 5, now the song turns, and it's almost as if it's not talking about Jesus anymore. It's almost calling us into the action. Verse 5, thus says God... Yahweh, or the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. In other words, the source of everything. This is the one talking to you, the one who's the source of everything. Verse 6, he says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So when we want credit for things, just remember, my glory I give to no other. Nine, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
So I'm the God that also sees the future. I'm the God that sees all this. I'm telling you, justice is coming to the nations. I'm going to establish the world in peace and unity and harmony and love. I'm going to make things right. But I'm asking you not to take my glory. I'm asking you to take on the image of this servant who's not going to raise his voice and show off, who's not going to break the bruised reed, but he's going to befriend the weak, who's not going to quit or be discouraged, but he's going to keep on going even when it doesn't seem like things are succeeding. God wants us to take on the servant's footsteps so that we can then bring light to the people around us, so that we can open the eyes of the blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon of darkness which, of course, shows us that this isn't literally setting prisoners out of prisons. It's not like jailbreak, let the world freak out because the murderers are around us. It's the prisons of darkness, that people are living in this bondage, and that we are to bring the light to them. How are we to bring that light? How am I to be a light to the people around me who can't see, who are living in the bondage of darkness? Well, Isaiah suggesting, follow the servant. Follow the servant. It's not going to be by the Christians showing off their godliness or their knowledge or their ideas, nor is it going to be from the Christians getting cozy with the powerful, nor is it going to be the Christians that just say, eh, you're not worth my time because you haven't received Jesus soon enough. It's going to be when we stop showing off, when we start befriending the weak, and when we say we're not going to quit. We have godly grit, if you will. That's where the light's going to come from, because that's how Jesus brought it. And Isaiah is calling us. Well, he's calling Israel then, but I, because we now know Jesus was the servant, we follow Jesus. We're part of this movement. He's asking us to follow the servant, to become like a servant ourselves. So, why don't you go ahead now? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll see what's going on in Jesus' life when this text says this is him. So Matthew 12, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to go to Matthew 12, verse 15. So what's been going on is that Jesus is with his disciples, and he's been performing a few miracles. One of the things you'll notice about Jesus' miracles is that he never goes into a town hunting for somebody who needs him. He actually, all we ever see is he's in action. He's moving somewhere, and someone comes to him. Jesus is about living the plans he makes and keeping himself open to whoever walks in his path, and he never turns them down. But Jesus was not about, let's go into this town and see how we can wow these people. Peter, John, James, go find me five of the sickest people and make sure they come to me right when everyone's looking. Because everyone needs to know what I'm doing. You could justify that as a good thing. But Jesus never sets up a stage. It just seems that they're trying to go on as he's trying to raise up his disciples and people interrupt and he never turns them away. But he says, now is the spotlight. I'm not going to call attention to it. They came to me. Let's meet the need. And so he is just in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there's a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees want to see what Jesus will do with him. So they kind of plant him right in Jesus' vision. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Let's find out. So Jesus then, of course, addresses them. Come on, you will, you will deliver an animal who's caught in a well on the Sabbath, and you won't let me heal this guy? I'm going to heal him anyway. So he heals the guy's withered hand, right? And then it says, if you will look at Matthew 5, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. So things are getting very dark now. 
Now the religious authorities and teachers in Israel don't like Jesus to the point that they want to kill him. They're conspiring. So then we pick up in verse 15, Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Wait. He's moving out of town, out of the spotlight. People start following him. He's like, well, we're going to fo- Okay. Heals them. But then says, but, but when you go back, make sure nobody knows I just did this for you. Um, Brandon's plan. I have super healing abilities. I don't. Hypothetically. I have super healing abilities. We got five people in here. I'm going to line them up. I'm going to heal you guys one by one. You're all going to be my witnesses to this. We do it. You guys are amazed. I would be amazed too. I'd be like, I did that. <laughs> then I would say, all right, go tell everyone that like God is working here and there are miracles happening through my hands. Let's just like set this mountain on fire with our ability to heal. There's, most of you think that sounds really good. I would think that too. That's Brandon's plan. But I'm looking at Jesus' plan and he's actually like, okay, I just healed you, but shh. This doesn't leave this building. Are you kidding me? He needs a new campaign manager. Like, that is not how you win. Get the votes. Don't tell anyone. This is not the only time he does this. Mark opens up his gospel. It's within the first chapter. um, With a, a, a paralytic who comes to Jesus. And he heals him. And he says, hey, make sure nobody knows. I don't know how nobody will know that a paral, uh, not a paralytic, a leper, a man with leprosy heals him. I don't know how nobody's going to know, oh, you had leprosy, now you don't. Like, oh, I don't know, nothing happened. What do you mean I'm healed? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, no, clearly, dude, your skin's different. You're, you're, you're better. I'm, it must be the water. <laughs> but Jesus told him not to tell anyone. You know what the next verse says? So he went out and told everyone. <laughs> Jesus then rises from the dead. And he tells Mary and Mary, who are there at the tomb, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he has risen. The angel tells them, go and tell them that Jesus has risen. And then the next verse says, this is Mark 16, verse 8, so they went and told no one. <laughs> so here's what I see is we're really bad at telling people about the good things and we're really bad about telling them about the things we're not supposed to tell them about, I guess. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, some of us don't say much. But then when it comes to showing off, we say plenty. Let's now go to Mark 1. I want to show you how dramatic Jesus is about making sure no one knows. It's Mark chapter 1. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> we didn't actually read the Isaiah passage here, did we? If you already left, it's okay. So after he tells them to let, he ordered them not to make him known, then Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit on him. It says he will not cry aloud. And it goes on to the passage we read. So Isaiah says, Matthew says, when Jesus said, don't tell anyone about my healings, he was becoming the servant who would not call attention to himself. Now Mark 1. Mark 1, verse 29. And immediately, Mark 1, 29, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon 
and Andrew with James and John. So this is Peter's house. Now, Simon, Peter, his name hadn't been changed yet. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they, took, they told Jesus about her. So Jesus is just coming into Peter's house. Probably because they're going to have a meal or stay the night. And look, lo and behold, there's someone there. Now, Jesus does not call the neighborhood over. He just simply takes care of her because she's right in front of him. He takes care of her. And so he came and took her, 31, by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Word's been getting out somehow. And the whole city was gathered together at the door of Peter's house. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So they're coming to Jesus. Okay, they're coming to me. He heals them through the night. What happens the next day? 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, slips out by stealth. Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, a place where the people aren't at. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And finally, they found him and said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Despite your horrible campaign style, the polls are just in and they're through the roof. You've got everyone talking about you in Capernaum. Why are you out here hiding? Everyone is looking for you. Everyone's talking about you. Everyone wants a piece of you. And 38, Jesus said to them, my translation, that's nice. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out to this desolate place. Wait, what? So the disciples tell him, you are a big hit. People are looking for you. That's why you left the city? That's why I came out to this desolate place. Let's go to other towns now. Jesus, now Peter especially is thinking this. Jesus, you can come back to my house. We'll set up base camp there. And we will continue to receive people until they stop coming. Even if it takes years. And Capernaum, especially my house, will have the credit, will have the reputation of being the healing place in Galilee. And people will seek us out for miles as rumor goes around. Nope, Peter. Nope. I am going to these other places. I'm not here to build an empire. I'm not here to call attention to myself. I'm not here to build a stage or a platform and to walk up on that until people are groveling at my feet or graveling or whatever it is. I am here as the secret servant that Isaiah talked about. I am here to bring light to those who are in darkness. And it's not going to be by bringing the light to myself. That's the wrong place the light needs to be. It needs to be on those who are in the dungeons of darkness, who are blind. That's where the light's going. So I'm going to keep moving. Now, this is, this is crazy because in this time, 
the concept of patronage was enormous, which essentially is that there were the haves and the have-nots. Most of the world was the have-nots. And the way the system worked was the haves gave just enough to the have-nots to keep them following, like little breadcrumbs, keep coming, keep coming. And the more that the haves gave away to the have-nots, the more followers they would have, which would mean the more power, the more influence, and the more attention. So what is Peter thinking? Oh my goodness, this guy can heal people. We can start the Simon Peter family healing business <laughs> and we would become rich and we would gain followers and influence and maybe we can one day change Galilee to actually be Israel once again and not Roman occupation. Like he's, his mind is going towards the glory that can come out of this. And Jesus... The horrible campaign manager, the party pooper says, nope. I know, we're doing really well. That's exactly why we're leaving. Wow. This is the kind of servant that Jesus was. Not the servant who makes things better for people or finds out ways to do things and then says, by the way, I did that. That puts his little logo on everything, on his task force or on his accomplishments, a little like Jay with a circle around it, with a little smile like, Jesus, the, the brand, follow it now. Um, <laughs> He wasn't about that. He was just about, people don't need to know who I am. They need to know who my father is. Which is strange because we know who he is. You can see Jesus really, in a way, enlisting the disciples into the secret service. Now, I mean, not like the guys that stand around the president and talk into their cuffs and things, but... <laughs> A different kind of secret service. The ones that go and serve in secret. And some people may not even know they were there because they live as if they do not exist. Some of us struggle with the concept of distance with God or feeling distant from God. And the concept of, is God even in my life? I'm really beginning to not be sure about that. Yeah, I believe all these things, but I don't really have any proof. Like any, like, I don't know. I don't have any sense that God's there. And I'm even beginning to doubt the things I believe. Some people have always felt distant. But here's what we need to understand. Is that God still works the same way today. He will serve us secretly. And it's for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that are the closest to understanding his presence. Those that you know who just seem to have it, like just seem to sense, yeah, God's in my life. They are the ones that are looking not for the message in the sky, but they've learned to see in little ways how God works. In a conversation with the person whom you could just walk away saying, yeah, that person, I don't know how they knew that about my life, but they, it was just a conversation, kind of freaky coincidence. But others would look back and say, I think God was reminding me through that person that he's in my life right now, that he's working this out. Or in the way that you might find something randomly provided for you. Like, wow, well, that was good fortune. Or maybe God's reminding you, hey, I take care of you like the sparrows and like the flowers of the field. You see, those who have a sense of God's nearness have learned to look for the secret servant in their life. They've learned that God rarely leaves footsteps. He doesn't leave a business card, call me back if you need me again. I mean, he will do that, but... I mean, you know, you can call me, you come back. But I mean, he's not leaving like his mark all the time. It, it's very, you've got to learn to read the fingerprints, if you will. A little dust disturbed there. 
I mean, think about, too, the resurrection. The, what we should be considering as the... It is the turning point of history. It's the most amazing single event of history that someone conquered death. Someone has come back from death and is promising a new kind of life that he will bring to all who follow him. That's amazing. And yet he comes out of the tomb and just says, Hey, tell the disciples bye. No trumpets were blaring. Hey, Caesar, we got a message for you, buddy. You think you're the son of God. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> None of that. No competition, no showdown, no Western 10 steps and turn and then see who's the quickest. Like, no, no just like stage. Jesus just almost like slips out, visits his disciples, and then says, I'm going up to the Father. Do your job while I'm gone. This is not how Brandon would do it. If I came out of a grave, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> Never really thought about that. I would probably tell a few people, and then they would want me to go on Fox News or CNN or, or some late night show. They'd probably then turn me to satire, but whatever. You know, and like tell the world, like, you wouldn't believe it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But what we see is that God does things so secretively, so silently. Because he's calling those who are looking for him to see him. Now, every now and then, he'll whop somebody on the side of the head. And you're like, oh, God. But not usually. And if you're waiting for that, maybe that's why you're missing. You feel like you're missing that spiritual aspect in your life. I encourage you to start just talking with other Christians. How do you see God? And, and start reflecting backward on your day. Where might God have been working? You know, like when Philip isn't, this is an X, I think it's X7 or 8. It's X8. When Philip is in the wilderness and he sees this chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch, and then it says the spirit told him, run to that chariot. So he runs up to it. Jump into the seat and ask him what he's reading. So he jumps up and asks him what he's reading. and say, I'm reading Isaiah 53. How did you know that? I would need help understanding this, which, by the way, we'll do on Christmas Eve. Um, and Philip then shares the gospel, and like, oh, wow, I need to be baptized. Here's some water. Let's be baptized. And they baptize him. Now, the whole story is told. The spirit, Philip's just kind of in the wilderness. The spirit talks to him. Hey, look at that. What? Oh, there's a chariot. You're right. Wow, God, what should I do? Go run to it. Okay, I'll run to it. We read it and think like that's how it works. But more than likely, it was, more not, it was a more process which Philip would have been like, oh, I didn't notice that chariot. I wonder who's on that chariot. He look, looks like he's reading. I wonder, maybe I should just go check it out. Like, and then in retrospect, Philip goes, that was the Holy Spirit talking to me. That was God leading me. But you only see that in retrospect. You only see that when you look backward. See, we don't often see God's face in the moment because God told Moses, you don't look at me in the face like that. You want to see my glory? I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. My glory will pass by. And once I am passed by, then I will take my hand off your face and you will see my backside. You will see where I had been, in other words. And so Moses then sees where God was. That's the closest to God he could describe. And it's the same in our lives. It's, we need time to look backward and say, now I see where God has been in my life. Now I see where he's been working. The secret servant, Jesus, has been active, and I knew it not. 
And then for us who are ready to go and follow in the secret servant's footsteps, the call is for us to serve secretly, to join the secret service of God. How do we do that? Three ways. First, live as if you don't exist. That was our first one. I've been talking about that, but this, I, I don't even exactly know what that means, but it sounds so neat. Start, start to live. And I think it's basically just in a way, like if, if nobody knew you really exist, what would you do? How would you serve people? How would you go about with reckless abandon about what people think about you because you're hanging out with these people doing this for someone? How would you go about that? And then how would you handle yourself when you saw people were happy about it? Would you be expecting a little bit of a notice, a little bit of attention? Or would you be like, I've already moved on to the next town, so to speak? Live as if you don't exist. Second, and perhaps one of the ways we can do this, is to come down the ladder. Now, our society is all about upward mobility. Life is about starting down here and getting educated up to the next rung, up to the next rung. And then, of course, when you're looking at bigger education, not just getting more education, but which university is a big deal because some are higher than others and then which career because some careers are higher up the ladder than others and then of course which of those careers is offering you a better salary because salary puts you in a different spot up the ladder and then when you get that what car what clothing what friends what neighborhood what city because all of these are somewhere on the ladder this is america upward mobility keep going up the ladder and we want to know which rung you're on But what we see in the secret servant is we see someone who says, downward mobility, downward. I was up here, but I'm not going to call everybody up to my rung. Might be hard. It gets really crowded, a lot of people on one ladder. I'm instead going to come down to where everyone else is. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Christmas is. It's about God coming down the rungs to us. Not, hey, I'll kind of meet you halfway. You come up a little bit. No, he just comes all the way down like water, which never ceases to move downward until it finds the lowest possible point. And then, eventually, it gets resurrected. And then it comes back down to the lowest possible point. And so does Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 5, is a magnificent passage about downward mobility. You can find it or listen. In Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul is writing to this church, and he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he went further down. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, one more step lower, even death on a cross, the criminal's execution the one that Romans would not do to their own citizens, only to slaves and those who were treacherous against Caesar. He went as low as he can go. But, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name. Look, credit will come when it comes, but the secret servant never seeks it. Continues to move down the ladder, downward mobility. That's what a servant is. 
When it says that he did not count, verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that doesn't mean, oh, he's already divinity, so it was nothing that he had to prove. It actually, the, the, the common English um, Bible translates this really spot on. It says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. It means he did not use his status as, well, you know who I am, don't you? You know I have connections. You better treat me differently. And tell the big man upstairs on you. Like he never used his godness against people. In fact, he just disregarded. That's not a card I'm ever going to play with people. I'm going to continue to be a servant and move downward. Not holding one rung on the ladder while I'm hanging out with you guys. Just so I can pull myself up in case. No, I'm full in. I'm not going to use that card. That's a servant. So we, we move down the ladder. So we live as if we don't exist. We climb down the ladder, and then finally we become all things to all people. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9. I'm making it flip around a lot, but it's okay. A lot of Bible tonight. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul has this phrase. He says, I become all things to all people. Now, he talks about this in the form of a servant, this is how I serve people. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all, I'm free to be who I am, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I became a servant to win people. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That's how he serves. He said, I make myself a servant to all. How does he serve all? By becoming all things to all people. So this person is here. I'm going to be there. This is, this is the downward mobility. Jesus is going to save humans. So what does he become? He becomes a human. Becoming all things to all people. Now, this does not mean, well, I want to save those druggies. So I'm going to become a druggie. Paul's talking about rights that he holds, freedoms and liberties that he will discard any of in order to have access with these people that he's reaching. So if he's reaching the Jew, he says, I'm going to become like a Jew. What does that mean? It means I'm not going to eat pork, even if I feel free to eat a pulled pork sandwich at the barbecue. But when I'm reaching a Jew, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to become like them. I'm going to think... What matters to them so that I can secretly be serving them? Not from my high position. I am the apostle after all. I am going to help you. There's nothing secret about that. That's just everyone notice me. I'm the deliverer. How do we or who do we need to be to serve people around us? Sometimes it just means 
Stop thinking I have a right to be who I am and just be the person that doesn't annoy them to death. Even if it means changing your habits or your preferences. You might have to get into country music. But this is the way of the secret servant. Finding the lowest way, the under the radar way, not bringing attention and being friendly toward the weak because he's not concerned about what all this can bring himself. And so, if you feel distant from God, know that he's behind the scenes even now, and he's working on you. And you might be thinking, Pastor Brandon, he annoys me the way he teaches. Like, but I don't know, maybe God was doing something there. I'm not God, but maybe God is letting you hear something through me. I'm not even aware of that. I have no clue. But see, you can't be the person that says, Pastor Brandon, I'm... bearded guy. I can't listen to bearded guys. Well, then you're shutting down God is what I'm saying. The people who are open to God working secretly behind the scenes hear and see him. But we often put up these, I can't, prejudice, pride and prejudice. So please know that God's working behind the scenes in your life. He's working now. And that the people around us who live in darkness need us to live the same way need us to be the secret servants undercover for God. Not how great we are as Christians and I'm going to be your deliverer, but just I'm going to get as close to you as possible and just see how I can serve you. Because you can't serve someone until you know their needs. You might think, oh, they need a car. Here, like, I didn't want a gas-guzzling car and I have to deal with this thing? (laughs) Well, I was serving you. You should probably know the person. Maybe they didn't need another car. They needed somebody to help make food at home because their kids are taking all their time and they don't have somebody to help with that. Maybe that's how you can serve them. 